Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to AOK. Before we start the episode, we just want to remind you that everyone's sexual and romantic attraction works a bit differently. What you are about to hear are opinions based on personal experience, and any descriptions of romantic or sexual orientations featured in this episode are not representative of any group. friends and welcome to AOK, the podcast about people on the aromantic and asexual spectrums. I'm your Aeroace host, Courtney Lang, and joining us today is Chris, who is an escape room enthusiast. Hello. Hi. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, tell me about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Chris. Uh, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm 30 years old, and I use he, him pronouns, and I am technically homo romantic asexual or as i like to call it homo romantic meh sexual because <laughs> i'm also gray sexual great um what's this being so what does being homo romantic and meh sexual mean for you yeah so for me it means um i identify as gay um but obviously without the big uh thing that identifies most gay people which is why it's homo romantic not homosexual mm-hmm. um which means i'm not really big into the whole sex thing um i identify as kind of self-identify as mess sexual because for me sex is just meh i can leave it take it or leave it it's not really a big <laughs> of my identity mm-hmm. um and so it's just it's not something that's uh, a big focus for me and i would say i probably get the the desire for sex m- maybe once a year or so twice a year depending and so it's it's to say that it's not reliable by any means right it's it's kind of a surprise yeah yeah just kind of oh i'm in that mood okay cool (laughs) and if if nothing comes of it it's not the end of the world like i'll wake up tomorrow and it'll probably be gone right right okay um when did you figure out your orientation Oh, that that is a long story. Um, <laughs> took twenty five years for me to figure out. Okay. So, I so that was just five years ago or so that I figured it out. <laughs> um, I would say I wasn't entirely comfortable with my current identity until probably about two or three years ago. Um, I started out thinking. I kind of coached my identity in the bisexual spectrum. Um, And that was when I was in college. So that would have been when I was like 18, 19. I was like, oh, I might be bisexual. Mm -hmm. And I really hadn't had any experiences to know either way. So I was like, well, maybe. I don't know. It could be. But let's just go with this for now. Because there's like that one-off person where it's like, oh, you know, they're kind of attractive. Right. And... So that confused things. And then obviously the lack of sexual attraction was a huge thing where everyone's like, oh, you know, I just want to have, you know, sex with this girl. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, <laughs> I don't feel that at all. Am I supposed to feel that? Maybe I'm not like bi. Maybe I am gay. But then I then on the flip side, like, I don't want to have sex with guys either. Like, this is confusing. Right. So I didn't know what I was 
the longest time because of that. Yes. Um, I So as I got older, I took a break from college and I actually moved out to San Francisco for a year. Oh. And yeah, so I'm originally from Wisconsin. So moving out to San Francisco was a big shift. And it was kind of a good chance for me just to explore everything about myself and just kind of completely have an identity reset. Um, and so the one thing about San Francisco is that it's obviously a very gay town. And with that, there's a lot of opportunities to explore that aspect of your identity, um, both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I took advantage of, of some of those opportunities. And I, when I came back after that year, I was like, okay, I'm definitely not bi. I'm definitely more on the gay side of things. But the sex is still not my favorite. But, like, I did it in San Francisco. So it's like, okay, where where does that leave me? Like, it's not something that I, I absolutely had to have in my life. Right. And I remember watching that uh, documentary, um, Asexual, I think it's called. Yeah, on Netflix. On Netflix? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I remember watching that and being like, well, that's not me. Like, that just didn't represent me at all. Right. So I was like, all right, well, maybe I'm not asexual then. And so that just kind of threw things into more confusion. So I ended up coming out as bisexual when I was 25 as kind of like a, this is kind of mostly who I am, but not entirely. Like, I'm not entirely sure. And I wasn't quite comfortable admitting the whole aspect of it at that point. Mm -hmm. So it was probably another year, year and a half to the point where I was like, no, I'm definitely on the ACE spectrum and getting more comfortable with that. So probably when I was like 26 or so, is when I got much more comfortable with it. Yeah. Uh, And then, yeah, just kind of have grown even more comfortable with it and more comfortable with it and really fine tuned the idea of it over time to the point where I've gotten to mess sexual. So like in the process of figuring out your orientation, did labels like bi and gay and ace, did that help? Or do you feel like it hindered like the exploration process Uh, i think it was kind of both okay so it was it was it was a nice kind of anchor to to say yeah that's what i am and it's great to have this identity but then i was also so restrictive in the same respect where it's like all right if i'm you know bi means i would have to like girls and guys and not so much the case and, and at least in that regard um you know, and same with gay. It's like, all right, if I'm gay, then it means that I want to have pretty much exclusive sex with men. And that's not really something I'm into either. And ace means, you know, not having any sexual desire when that's not the case either. So it was nice to at least get that base identity there and kind of that idea. But, um, the actual identity itself was a little confining in the same respect. Yes. So it's kind of it's kind of the letter versus the spirit of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think it helps having the gray ace piece. Like yes. so it's not so black and white. It's literally gray. I didn't even I stumbled into that one. Um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and I can imagine. So did the 
the split attraction model, like with the separating the romance from the sex uh, attraction, like does that help you a lot? That was when I when I discovered that that was a huge help. I was like, oh, okay, that makes so much more sense than what I was taught. Mm-hmm. Right, going back to health class, like where we were never taught that those were two separate things. Right, and even the little bit of just like, you know, men have sex with men and moving on. Like that's a, pretty much the majority of the gay education I got in high school even and it was a public high school and so realizing that romantic attraction and sexual attraction are two very different things was incredibly helpful for me yeah okay that whole process of like quote-unquote getting more comfortable with it and getting more comfortable with it that's so relatable because I feel like there really is a phase for a lot of people on the ACE or aero spectrums of getting comfortable with it. And I mm-hmm. wonder if that's because you're taught sex is so important that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, in health class, you're, you're taught, I mean, you're taught heterosex, first of all. Uh-huh. Um, second of all, you're never taught that it's even a thing. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of expected to, uh, partake in traditional sexual activities whatever orientation it might end up with but you know we i remember in my health class we never talked about that we talked about being eunuchs and and what it meant when someone's going to cut your balls off like what that was <laughs> oh god and all that stuff but we never <laughs> talked about like the fact that there's many different sexualities yeah You learn about, like, celibacy, but you don't learn about asexuality. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and growing up in a Catholic uh, elementary school and middle school made things even more confusing because it's like, well, maybe am I a priest then? Like, do I want to be a priest? (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm in the sex. And, like, they don't get to have sex, so maybe. Right. So what was the most difficult part of the process for you? I would say the most difficult part of the process was probably, um, besides coming to the acceptance piece, because that part's hard. I mean, there's no way around that. There's a reason it takes time. Um, I would say the next hardest part is definitely dating. It's definitely an incredibly difficult part. Of the whole process. Yeah. So you, you've dated before, correct? Yes. Um, yes. How, how do you navigate that? Like, are you currently trying to date or is that in the past? So I am currently, uh, I currently have a boyfriend. So. Oh, well, congratulations. Kind of in the past. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess, I guess in that sense, it's in the past. Um, but yeah, dating before it was just—it's a nightmare. Um, and I was—I was thinking about that actually before, and it was the one thing that kept coming to mind was just how how people boil down your identity to that one piece, mm. and that one piece is sex, your, your your sexual attraction. Where as soon as I would say, yeah, I'm not really big into sex things would just shift immediately. Be like, oh, okay, well, I'm not really interested anymore. Right. And 
it was it just made things very hard and i would i would have experiences where people would be like oh yeah no that's that's totally cool i'm totally cool with that and then they'd be like so are we ever going to i was like told you i'm not really big into it uh, like yeah no that's cool but and we it's like yeah i, I guess but it's not really my thing so i kind of like it if you would respect like when i'm into it so it makes things definitely hard especially when you're when you're boiled down to just one piece of your identity yes definitely what how do you navigate the intersection between like being gay and ace yeah it's very complicated very complicated because i mean really it's such a big part of the gay community that it's all about sex and you know there's other aspects that confound upon that too where you know it's like all right if you're not if you don't fit into this mold then it's going to be even harder for you and if you don't fit into this mold plus this mold then it's even harder right and i just felt like i was i was playing this whole game on like expert level hard mode (laughs) and so it was just it was it was so hard and it took a lot of time to the point where once I started dating, which was probably when I was 25, 24, 25, when I actually started to date people until now where I actually have someone that I'm super happy and comfortable with, um, took a long time and there was a lot of missteps and a lot of not so great relationships and some good, but just didn't work out and some misfires. So it, it, it was a lot, it was a long process. Yeah. There's no way around it. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are ace and really want a relationship? Oh, uh, I would say it, it, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to lie. It's going to be hard, but to stick with it because eventually you will find someone. It may not feel like it, there are times when you're going to sit there and wonder, like, is it me? Am I just that unlovable? Or, like, I wish I wasn't ace or anything like that. But you will find someone that loves you for you. And, yeah, you can get caught up in platitudes about, you know, you need to love yourself before you love anyone else and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you'll you'll find someone and they'll love you for who you are. And if they don't, then they're not the right person for you. Yeah, nice. God, I go on and off between like trying to date and trying and not even bothering. So that was, that's very nice to hear. Like just stick with it. And like someone eventually will come around who actually like listens to you and like believes you. And yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's not to say, so everyone's just like, Oh, you know, this person fell into my lap or whatever. And it's like, okay, in today's day and age you actually have to do a little bit of mining yourself like you have to go through the stuff actually to get to that person they're not just gonna like magically appear in your messages one day like you actually have to like go through like okay cupid and do the matches and all that stuff and make little messages here and there and see what happens right because it, it, it's like it's like fishing right you know you have to throw your line out at least a little bit before you can even get a bite versus just sitting on the shore like Hopefully a fish will jump in my, in my net that I'm just holding up here. That's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, man. Dating and fishing metaphors. I don't know what it is, but. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it, I think it's just so easy to go to. Yeah. Oh, man. That's good. Um, is there anything you wish you, I guess, had known 
about that dating, like just the process of it before you really got into it? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think I wish I would have known just how hard it would be. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I would have wanted to know that, but I think looking back, that would have been one thing that would have been at least nice to have a warning of. Mm. Uh, because I, I think if I would have known that, I probably would have been a lot more hesitant to jump into it. But if I at least had some warning, be like, hey, this is going to be kind of hard and it's going to cause you a lot of mental strife and and all this other stuff. I think it would have been nice to at least have that warning. Um, right. Because, yeah, I mean, it was really hard. And there were times when it's like, you know, I was really down on myself. I'm wondering, is it me? Is it just this identity that I've been given? Is it what is it about me? And it's really nothing about me. It's more about the other person, right? That they're just not able to accept me and we're just not a good fit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, moving on. So you are in the kink community, correct? Often on, yeah. Okay. I, I would say less so now with my current partner, but it's still an interest. Okay. Sure. Yeah. What got you into kink? So it was it was one of those things where I remember kind of going looking back through my memories as a child and it's like, all right, there's some things that always kinda of interested me and I just didn't realize what it was about that. Mm-hmm. And so it was always kind of complicated. So I remember that there was a TV show. Gosh. Oh, I can't remember what it was. It was something Wolf on Campus. Anyways, it was about this football player that turns into a werewolf and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, like, that kind of led me down a whole path of, like, okay, that's a whole thing that people are into. And... Then it was kind of like exploring, like, all right, well, what is it about that? And then it just kind of delved into there. It was just a series of rabbit holes, really, mm-hmm. um, that got me into it and realizing, oh, okay, so this is a community of people that are into the same things I am. And they respect it and because we're all the same way. And I would say San Francisco had a big part to play in that where it was like, okay, if I'm going to try on these different identities, I might as well do it here and in a place that's like the most open place to do it. Right. Um, And so I would say San Francisco was a big part of that to the the point where I went to my first uh, kink party in San Francisco. Now that you have become comfortable with, you know, being great ace, um, mm-hmm. how do you navigate, uh, the intersection between kink and asexuality? Cause I know for a lot of people, they don't understand that, that like that sexuality and kink doesn't go hand in hand. So what does that look like for you? Yeah. So for me, it's more about like the, the personal satisfaction I get from it. So for me, you know, rubber being an example. So like, that's always been something that I've been interested in. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's not so much about having sex with another guy while you're in rubber. It's more the act of wearing it and being able to 
be around other people with that and, and enjoying that aspect of it. Okay. Um, and that's not to say that it won't delve into things like masturbation and things like that, because that definitely um, is part of, of my gray identity, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. where that's something I'm almost always good with it's yeah. just once it gets more into like the penetrative stuff i'm like oh, okay let's let's pump the brakes there. yes yeah so it's definitely there's a place for it it just doesn't go as deep i think as it does for other people okay yeah because i feel like at least like a lot of allosexual people i've found like they it's very tied together for them mm-hmm. the kink and the sex and yes uh, like I just find they're almost like two completely different things. Yeah, and it I think it definitely varies. Yeah. Um, because there are parties that I've been, or, or so the party that I went to in San Francisco was a very open party, right? And so it was all gay men or men that have sex with men, not necessarily all gay, but there wasn't an expectation of sex there, right? It was just. We're getting together because we enjoy wearing rubber. Mm -hmm. That's it. And if something happens and it's, you know, we're comfortable with it, then cool. We'll we'll go down that path. But there's no expectation that you're going to engage in that, which I really enjoyed. It was just kind of more the the whole, let's experience this together. Let's have the shared experience. Right. So it was a rubber-specific party. Yes. And you just sat around and hung out. I mean, for the most part, yeah. I mean, yeah. we tried, there's all kinds of different things you could try. I mean, so it was um, above this, I guess it's technically a, a, a fetish shop, but they sell sex toys and stuff too, um, called Mr. S. And so it was above Mr. S leather. Okay. And so they had all kinds of different stuff, you know, and people would bring out their own collection of things. So like there was a vacuum cube, so you could try that and people would bring their gas masks and you would try that. And it was just all different stuff that it was basically just kind of like a, almost like an exposition of things to try in, in a lot of ways. Um, so it wasn't necessarily just like, Oh, let's just sit around and play cards. While we're <laughs> in this. It was, it was much more active than that, but it wasn't exclusively sex. either. Right. What so? What are some stereotypes you run into about kink culture? Um, I would say one of the big ones is is kind of like you mentioned that it's exclusively about sex, mm-hmm. and it's not um, because there's a difference between a kink and a fetish, right? And you know, and I forget exactly what the the defining line is between the two, but. Um, because uh, I use them interchangeably. Like, for, for me, there's no real difference. Right, yeah. Textbook-wise, there is a difference. And for me, it's it's a big uh, stereotype that people assume that it's connected. And it's, and it's not. Like, I can have satisfaction without it, and I can have satisfaction with it. It just adds to it. Right. Right, it's just kind of like a... It's like a multiplier effect, if you will. Yeah. Um, what do you think, like, if, if, like, any aspect of kink were more acceptable, just, like, out in the open, what mm-hmm. what would you pick? 
I mean, I think, I think we're definitely getting more open with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they made three movies about it. You know, Fifty Shades oh, yeah. of Grey mm-hmm. and Freed and whatever it was. It was. Um, so I, I would say we're getting more open with it. But I would say that even then, we're still limiting it to heterosexuality. Right. Um, so I would I would say if we could open it more up to um, hetero or homosexuality and and kind of more broaden the the type of people that we see in those situations, I think would be helpful to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like desexualize it even. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's nothing wrong with it being sexual, but. Right. And, and it get you know, and it, that's what it is for some people and that's totally cool, right. but not for everyone. And it's, it's not always an expectation, at least at the places I've been to, it's not always an expectation that it ends in that. So. Right. Yes. Okay, good. Um, and it's like totally separate from kinks, although this sounds like it could be, but it's not. Um, you've done over 60 escape rooms. Yep. Uh, what, do yep. You, what do you like so much about them? Oh, gosh. I, so for me, it's just a fun hour of problem solving and accomplishment and just being able to l- literally and, and mentally escape. So, <laughs> it, I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah. It's, you're, you just get so focused on these problems and these puzzles that you don't have time to think about other things. Okay. What sorts of puzzles do you typically do in these rooms? And do you have a favorite? So in an escape room, it's a lot of locks. Um, oh. And it's not to say that it's all padlocks either. Um, so there's one puzzle that I, that comes to mind where you have to match up the the light sequence. So there are some blinking lights in this room. It was a space-themed room. And the lights would blink in a certain pattern. And so you would use that. So it would be like two at a time, three at a time, one, and then four. And you would use that code to put into this computer that would unlock this door that you had to get into. So just kind of that leap of logic, like, okay, this is probably a code that goes somewhere. And just kind of thinking through, like, okay, that light is blinking in a repeating pattern. What is that pattern? And just trying to figure that out is a is a big thing that you you see a lot. Um, there's a lot more technology in escape rooms than I think people would imagine that there would be. Um, a lot of uh, electronic locks and and some robotics even. Um, so it, it really depends on the, the owners, though. Uh, obviously, the, the chains have a lot more money, so they put a lot fancier puzzles in there right. um, than just your mom, mom and pop. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's not to say it's all it's not to, it's not all padlocks either. So Okay, very cool. Wow. I didn't know that they weren't all horror either, so that's very cool. Yes, they are not all horror. There are scary ones out there, but, I mean... I would say common ones are like Prison Break, Space, uh, some sort of future, usually a train of some sort. Oh. And there there, there are jump scares in some of them, which happen. 
um because things pop out that you're not expecting so i mean like that will scare you oh if you're not i expecting see it. yeah but it's not it's not meant to be like jump scare after jump scare after jump scare it's just kind of a surprise more than anything got it okay that's good to know is there any escape room that really sticks out to you like one you remember most yeah so there's there's two that come to mind okay um one was one that was here in Minneapolis. It was a escape house. And so you had 90 minutes instead of a, so typically escape rooms go for an hour. Okay. Um, this one went for 90 minutes and it was a three level house. And there were puzzles on every floor that would take you from one floor to the other, to a hidden passageway that took you to another place in the house. And so that was, probably the most immersive one I've done. Um, and that was just a really cool experience. Yeah. Um, the other one was I went to Greece about two years back with a group of college students when I was finishing my degree. And we did one. I organized a little outing one night in Athens to one. And it was very different than the ones here. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, European escape rooms tend to be a little bit more horror-based oh. and fear-based than the ones here. Uh-oh. And so that one was very different. And I didn't. I felt kind of bad because I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is fun. You just do puzzles and all that stuff. <laughs> and we get there. And they're like, yeah, so this mommy is going to chase you after 20 minutes. <laughs> and every five minutes or some, I think it was every five minutes, one chain will fall off. And once all the chains are off, then they will be able to chase you around the room. Oh, my God. And then they will go into a period of, like, dormancy for a couple minutes. And then it continues. Holy and if they shit. touch you, you're out. Okay. So it was, yeah, so it was a very, like, oh, okay, this is a whole new level that I'm not used to in an escape room. <laughs> That's terrifying. So, I don't know if I'd be able it, to do that. It was incredibly terrifying, <laughs> and none of us were prepared for it. And on top of that, I was—I got so dehydrated just from the day and everything else that I was, like, about to pass out that oh. I actually tagged out. And I was like, look, I'll sacrifice myself. For the good of the group. <laughs> and so I actually went into... So after you got tagged out, you got to go into the control room. So I went into the control room, and they felt so bad. Just like, you can go in. It's totally fine. We'll like you back in. I was like, no, I'm actually having more fun on the other side just watching this and seeing how you guys do all this. Because I never get to see that. That's so cool that you got to see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely it was definitely one of those moments of like, oh, okay, so that that legendary Greek hospitality, that's what this is. Like they were like giving me water, all the water I could drink, and just like helping me and just like talking me through their whole thing of like, all right, so now we're gonna do this, and this is how we do it, and so it was, it was really cool. That's awesome. So you and you got to see it. I'm assuming on like screens. Yep. Yep, it's just like little little uh, computer monitors, essentially. Oh my god, that's awesome. I always kind of wanted to see, like, inside that aspect of it. Like, I don't think I'd ever be able to do an escape room, because I think I would just, like, get so 
frustrated at not being right, but I think I would really like to work at one. Yeah, so, I mean, they do give you a lot of hints, and okay. so there are definitely ones that are easier than others. Right. Because um, there are some that are meant to be very hard, and some that are meant to be very easy. Um, I would say usually, like, the big chains are usually pretty good about their difficulty levels. So if they say something's hard, it's usually going to be pretty hard. If okay. they say it's easy, it's going to be easy. Um, yeah. Once you get into more like um, pop ones, then it's a little bit more hit or miss. Um, but I would say for for first timer, the chains are usually the way to go. Okay. What would you say your record is? Like how fast, like what's the fastest you've ever gotten out of one? Oh, I would say the fastest was probably in the 40 minute mark. So we had about 20 minutes left. Okay. That's pretty good. I mean, it's not the fact I've seen people. So one of the rooms here, um, they keep a, a, a scoreboard of like the fastest times for their rooms. And like, I saw one that was like 26 minutes. And I was like, how do you get through all these puzzles in 26 minutes? Like makes zero sense. You right. must've had like, the maximum number of people all working on the, these different puzzles because there's no way. Right. And what would you say, like, how out of 60 or over 60 escape rooms, like, percentage-wise, how many have you not beat? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I was looking at that. This is a while back, so it's a little out of date. Um, I would say I'm probably at about a 70 to 75% success rate. Holy when I crap. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not where, like I was kind of hoping you'd be more like the eighties, nineties, but you know, <laughs> things happen. So yeah, yeah. We can't I was be still perfect. surprised that I made, right. I was still surprised that I made it over half of the ones that I've done, but yeah. Yeah. Wow. I was, I was hoping for more. Yeah. That's amazing. That's that's one of those like hobbies that just like really stick out. Like that's incredible. It's a lot of fun once you get into it. And some people, um, you know, they do it and they're like, that was not what I thought it would be at all. And I kind of liked it. And some people are like, okay, well, that was interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I'll do that again. And it's like, okay, that, that's usually when I'm like, all right, what room did you do? Because I can usually tell based on what room you did, right. what kind of experience you had. Right. So. So do you have a specific recommendation for people in the Minneapolis or Twin Cities areas, like which one to try? Yeah, I would say if you're going to start, I would say the one at the Mall of America is probably one of the most solid rooms I've done. Okay. Uh, we're, we're in a pretty good area for escape rooms, actually, where it's hard to find a bad one. Okay. That isn't to say that they don't exist. Right. Because they do, but <laughs> they're pretty few and far between. So the one at the Mall of America is pretty good. Um, Mission Manor is really good. Um, Trapped is always good. There's I, I can only really think of like two that I would not do, and I'm only they're on my list just so I can say that I completed them because that's right. kind of like my ultimate goal to complete all of them in the metro area. <laughs> okay. Um, I have one more question for you. 
and mm-hmm. it's a biggie. Um, who is someone important to you? Gosh, someone important to me would be would have to be my grandpa. Oh, okay. Uh, so he was a big influence on my life and really a big influence on the timeline of my coming to terms with my sexuality and and dating and things like that. Um, So sexuality and and identity aside, he was just such a big influence in my life where he lived his life in a way that I try to model my life after. So he was always giving and just so committed to his community to the point where he helped build the church that he went to for the next 50 years. Holy cow. Um, always involved. You know, he would always, he was Catholic. So he was always helping out with the Friday fresh fish fries and everything he could, you know, he gave monthly to the church and just, he was just a good person through and through. No one had a bad thing to say about him. Wow. And he would just help you at the drop of a hat. And so just, the values like that that I learned from him just resonate throughout my whole life. And I, I try to model myself more after him with that. Um, and then getting into the more of the identity piece, he was also somewhat conservative with his views and very in line with what the Catholic church says, which is basically that gay people are not acceptable. And, um, you know, so on and so forth, things like that. So for me, it was, wasn't until he passed away this last October that I really was able to fully embrace that part of myself. It was up until then, it was always kind of like a secret that we didn't talk about in the family. Everyone else knew, but we just never brought it up with him. Mm-hmm. And so it made it hard to think about things like, okay, you know, if I'm going to go home for a holiday and I have a partner. What am I going to do with this partner? Because right. I can't necessarily bring them even though I may want to. So once he passed away, it just kind of made things easier in that respect. And now I don't have to worry about that, but it's, also, it made just such a big impact that I can't not think about it, too. Well, thank you for being here and talking to me. Thank you. Yes. Um, and thank you to everyone listening and to those leaving us reviews and tweeting about the show using the AOK podcast hashtag. Um, we read every single word, and it really means a lot to us. And as always, thank you to Uberkick for the use of their song AOK to Tanner Grayler for creating our cover art, to Sophie Lalonde for editing and producing this episode, and to our amazing patrons at patreon.com slash AOKpod. I'll be back next week with another guest, but until then, I'm Courtney Lang. And I'm Chris. And, and we, we are, are AOK. Thanks for asking, anyway.